1: in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. My guest today is Charlie Gear, who hates the Lake District. So much so, in fact, that his new book is unambiguously entitled, I Hate the Lake District. But it's not a diatribe against fudge shops and coach tours. He writes in his introduction I love the northwest of England, but hate the Lake District and the way it's fetishized and sacralized as some kind of unspoilt paradise, a consolatory eden to which those battered by contemporary life can retreat. I also love it guiltily for the very reasons that I hate it. I am overwhelmed, for example, by the experience of the mountains of the North Lakes in the autumn light, and uneasy that the pleasure I feel is a false appeal to nature as redemptive. So Charlie's attitude to the lakes, and the sort of post-romantic, anti-modernist, mystical, almost Tolkien-esque attitude to nature that they are often made to embody, is complex, often ambivalent. He wants to look beyond the tourist vistas and golden autumn hues and reintroduce some chiaroscuro into the landscape, a bit of shade, a bit of darkness. So the stories he pursues are of the people and places normally omitted from the tourist guides, of nuclear catastrophe, barely averted, eccentric artists, bodies in lakes, UFOs, even a failed theme park devoted to the nightmarish children's character Mr. Blobby. It's a view of the northwest that lets the uncanny back in. Charlie's professor of media theory and history at Lancaster University, but he was born and raised in West London. So I asked him what it had been like relocating to the North West.
0: Well, the first thing to say is I came to Northwest North West not to fulfil some kind of rural fantasy about living in the country. came to get a, uh, a promotion within the university sector and so I didn't come with any preconceptions. I'll be honest, I find the Northwest of England very beautiful and we've, never, um, we've always found it an incredibly great place to walk and to be in, but also I immediately realised it was more complicated than the way it's presented. The image is rather reductive and simplistic and it's a proper working environment and a complex environment. So almost from the very beginning we, when we arrived, I felt that there's a lot more going on there than seemed to be the case in terms of the tourist image of the northwest, And that actually got compounded, I quite early on got involved with Grisdale Arts, who are in the book, whose um, aim is really to critique and deconstruct much of the... You know the sort of romantic fantasies about the Lake District in particular, and that's been a very strong influence on my thinking about what these kinds of environments really are, as opposed to how they how they're consumed.
1: And your your title is clearly a provocation. Before I read the book, I thought maybe it's going to be about the commercialisation of the Lake District, and I suppose that's that's one element, but that's not really the core of it, is it? Your beef is with a, a whole view of the human attitude to nature and the relationship and this sort of duality that's set up between the human and the nature and what we go to nature for.
0: Exactly. I mean, the sense that nature has had to take whatever nature is. And, you know, being an academic, of course, I don't believe it exists. I mean, I've, I've got a problem with that idea. But much as we can say there is such a thing as nature, what we use it for and how we... I mean, ironically, our relationship to nature is very anthropocentric. We use it as as an other in which we can apparently escape all the the vicissitudes of being human. But of course we can't do that. And we are as much part of nature, whatever that is, as anything else. Um, And in fact, we're a sort of highly successful, uh, too successful aspect of nature. And that we really need to deconstruct this reactionary image of the rural and nature nature. Which of course I find very strongly in the new nature writing, which is one of my targets, if you like. Yes.
1: So if you go into if you go into bookshop today, there will be a whole table of this new nature writing ready for Christmas. What what is it about that kind of writing that that you don't like?
0: Oh, where do I start? I mean sense, <laughs> well, the Well first thing to say is the writers are very you know, many of the writers are very good. They're beautiful writers, they um you know they are capable of great sensitivity and expression, but I also think they're very reductive in the sense that they look for something very particular in the natural experience, something outside of history and outside of the human, which is, for me, an enormous problem. And the Lake District is one of the most constructed environments or landscapes you can find. There's, no, there's nothing really natural about it in real, any deep sense. And so my real problem is that, at worst, this presents a reactionary and evasive and self-deluding vision of our environment. And I suppose, at the very worst, you can't uncouple it from phenomena such as Brexit. I think that there's an element that this beginning to fetishise a particular landscape can veer into a kind of nationalism in a particular sort of way. Now, that's extreme. I don't think many of the people we're talking about actually fall into that trap at all. But they are the thin end of a wedge, the thick end of which is something quite pernicious, I think.
1: And your book is is mercifully Brexit-free, and I hadn't sort of thought about that aspect of it. But, you know, you say their attitude towards nature kind of decouples it from history and sort of essentializes and and fetishizes it and yet and yet that that view of nature is very historically Rooted, isn't it? It's, it's a romantic concept, and you know, when you're thinking about the Lake District, you're thinking primarily of Wordsworth. So, in a way, it's a sort of the sort of legacy of a Wordsworthian view of nature,
0: and a legacy of a particular time and space. It's quite recent. I mean, Wordsworth is 200, 250 years ago, for example. So, in the you know the broader aspect of existence, it's a very vanishingly short time ago. And he was working within a certain context, the beginnings of industrialisation and so on and so forth, a reaction against that. And Wordsworth, of course, is a much more complex thinker and writer than he has been somehow adopted as. Um, And we mustn't simplify what he said and the ambiguities he had about the landscape. But yes, it is is a legacy and the Lake District is very much uh, part of that legacy and Wordsworth and Coleridge being here. But I think in the end, we need a corrective to that, um, not least because of the the way that, the simplistic way in which the Lake District is regarded as a spectacle of naturalness, in a way that doesn't actually really really address what it actually is and what's happening to it. The number of visitors we have, you know, millions of visitors coming up here, um, choking the roads and generally making, in a way, destroying the very thing they've come to apparently find
1: so Charlie when you decided to respond to this to to challenge this view of the Lake District and of nature how did you decide on your methodology
0: ah, methodology well that was interesting um, It's partly luck my wife was away looking after her parents many weekends so I had a, a lot of spare time and a car and I did something which I um you can't, you can't really do with anybody else which just ramble about right, in a car just go places quite randomly and that the rule was that I wouldn't have any preconception of what I wanted to say there's no there's no message exactly I would just go somewhere and start to make connections I wouldn't start writing until I'd been to the place I was going to write about and then when I had been there I would just sit at my computer and see where I went so it's deliberately open-ended there's no polemic there's no prior set of intentions. There's no message. There's just a person responding in a maybe eclectic, maybe slightly sort of absurd way to what he encounters.
1: And I sm- I smiled in the preface when you mentioned Rousseau's reveries of a solitary walker because yours are, you're, I suppose, the reveries of a solitary driver. So that's a real, you know, the new nature writers wouldn't wouldn't be caught dead in a car, would they?
0: Well, yeah, the question is, how the hell do they get to where they're walking? So you know, there's an element of again, that's where you're leaving where you sort of blank out the bits of the rural experience that aren't suitable or convenient for this particular fantasy. And the truth to say that in, unless you have a car, if you live around here, you can't do anything. You know, And the cars are a crucial part of the rural experience and economy. And it was part of the experience. Literally the soundtrack of Radio 6 music, listening to the kind of music I listened to when I was a teen in London. or And that screen effect of going down these roads and then seeing a different vista... I wanted to capture an alternative mode of being in the landscape to that of walking.
1: You mentioned the screen. And there is there is something really quite cinematic about about your vision, I think, and the way that you are responding to, to what is out there.
0: Yeah, and um how could we not be cinematic? We are we are all the heirs of a deeply media saturated context. So we sort of see things through that lens, if you like, I mean, quite literally. So yes, it's cinematic um, and my experience of the world is informed by cinema and screen media and I thought it'd be honest to reflect that in the way that Wordsworth is exactly the product of a very um, scriptural economy, you know, about words. We, 200 or so years later, come from a much more rich media environment context and that's cannot but inform how we see things and i want to get that across
1: you wrote at one point about imagining the landscape after ruin and i thought ah i thought ah i've caught him isn't this isn't this really a romantic trope this is this is the romantics ruin and lust but in fact you're not going and staring at crumbling buildings so much as actually I guess imagining a completely different landscape of the future is a sort, of, it's a sort of post-apocalyptic ruin and lust.
0: I'm trying to look for a kind of estrangement that will actually make us relook at landscape without all the apparatus of the romantic vision, the anthropocentric romantic vision, to imagine it as something very other, which is why I cite science fiction films and um, TV programmes and novels like Solaris and Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, partly because they are strangers from the presumptions of how we see things that we should try to regard what's out there, the environment, not as something familiar. We need to defamiliarise ourselves, and ruin is one of the ways we can do it. You know, ruin is one of the means through which we can try to rethink what the landscape is. It's too comfortable for us. You know, nature is not comfortable, or shouldn't be.
1: The the way I sort of conceptualised what you were saying, or my shorthand for what you were saying, was it was, it was almost, I don't know if this is uh, shocking, but it was almost a sort of... Chernobylisation.
0: Yes, <laughs> Chernobylisation, yeah. It, absolutely. I'm, um, as I'm fixated on sort of ruin and destruction, it must be, I mean, absolutely a product of the Cold War. You know, if anybody of my age, I'm in my late 50s, it was brought up you know, in a reign of terror, basically. And I realise increasingly it's informed every single way, I think. And the notion, the prospect that what we see is always imminently open to destruction is more generally speaking, a way I tend to think about things, and that that sort of existential way of thinking about things is quite important. And it the book is dark. If you don't read it as dark, you haven't read it properly, it's a nihilistic yeah. book. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I have much hope for the environment or people, really.
1: So your opening chapter, your first visit, is to Sellafield. So there we are in a book about the Lake District, you visit the site of the largest nuclear processing facility in Europe.
0: Yes. And that's quite deliberate because, of course, if you know the Lake District, the way, or Cumbria, the way it's, the geography is that the Lake District is in the middle and it's the bit where everybody goes. And the north and west and actually south of the Lake District are all the bits and completely completely, well, comparatively unvisited, especially the west coast, the Cumbrian coast, the nuclear coast, as it's called. And I've always been struck by the irony of people seeking this um, redemptive... Yeah, relationship to nature experience nature while within very few miles there is the most toxic array of nuclear waste in in europe pretty much just next door and often visible from the tops of many fells so it's i was just fascinated by that juxtaposition really and what it said about what we look at and what we don't look at what we acknowledge and what we don't acknowledge as being part of our world you know
1: well your book's got your book's got some amazing juxtapositions really you've got Hadrian's Wall the limit the northern limit the furthest reach of the Roman Empire and then beyond that you've got a, an RAF site called Spade Adam Waste a sort of wasteland and I thought one of your great achievements of the book I'm Scottish but you you kind of you gave me a sense really of of the part of england that you inhabit as being the end of the world you know you could not just in roman times but i sort of i sort of felt that sense of you're at the, the limit of something well I, of something.
0: Know, I must apologize to any scottish listeners but yes uh, <laughs> and the sense that i mean whether you know uh, at the roman times hadrian's wall or thereabouts would have seemed like a limit of a certain sort. Though, of course, there's a lot of traffic to and fro. The wall was as much an entry as it was a, 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 a bar to people coming from Scotland, to what was, we now call Scotland. But if you go there, it does have this very peculiar, very empty feel. And the fact that it, they now test missiles there at Spade Adam is not at all surprising once you've experienced the landscape. And its, it's austerity and its, it's emptiness is very, very striking. Completely different to Lake District itself.
1: You also, you know, talking about that eeriness, that uncanniness, that darkness, you managed, to, you managed to bring that to the very lakes, the very bodies of water which give the, the area its name. So so Coniston becomes a sort of place of, of, of sort of death and darkness and murder, and, which I thought also was a nice, a nice move.
0: Yes, I mean, just that I've been involved with, through Grisel Arts, the whole shenanigans around getting the bluebird back to Coniston, which is currently not happening for various reasons, but always been struck by this sort of fanatological element of Lake Coniston, or Coniston water, as I should call it, I've been corrected on that, and then finding out about the, um, the various ladies in the lake, um, as they're called, the various, and the way that there is this deathly element there which is always present, but again, not acknowledged, you know, it's kind of disavowed by the visitor.
1: Tell me a little bit, you mentioned Grisdale Art. Tell me a little bit about what they're doing because it sounds like they are doing something which you're in tune with and which sort of contests this prevailing view well, of the lake district. Well, I mean, they've been a,
0: high, a very strong influence. Nice. They were originally the, the Grysdale Sculpture Trust and they did land art, you know, sculptures in the woods. But when Adam Sutherland took over 20 years ago now, he he engaged in a quite um, combative and provocative critique of lakes. Uh, the first thing they did was to put a big billboard in the middle of a forest near Grivesdale, which of course caused a furore of objections from locals, from tourists, visitors, everybody. But it was an a attempt to, as it were, really intervene in this landscape and try to show all the bits that are excluded from the fantasy. And for at least the first ten years of Adam's tenure, they've been doing that. Now they've gone much more towards an attempt to enrich the cultural life of Lake District communities um, to a lesser or greater extent successfully. But the very, very um, robust and brilliant critique that under Adam's uh, guidance they have been doing has been an absolute influence on me, that rethinking the in- what the rural environment is, what it should be, once we get beyond the idea it's just for tourism, which is what the Lake District is presented as very strongly.
1: Yes, and as you say in the book, that leaves out a large part of the, the, the community who, who live there. You know, so there's a political dimension to it too.
0: Very much, and it's not just political, it's environmental. So to some extent, preserving the way the lakes look is not helping to mitigate flood risk. I mean, there's a very literal sense that this is, this is a problem um, at, a, at a practical level that is impinging upon us right now. I believe we've got to rethink what we want an environment like Lake District to be and at a perhaps even deeper level, reimagine it you know, get away from one kind of imagination, the legacy of Wordsworth, and see this as a 21st century working environment full of different people visiting and locals who need it to work in various ways. And that's complicated. And what he gets presented at is simple. And just to go back to an early point, that's my problem with the new nature writing sometimes, is it, not always, but sometimes leaves out all that, you know, the sort of politics, the social dimension. The fact that, the lakes is a 21st century, you know, environment working within the context of an increasingly digitalised culture. And that's that's also not part of the fantasy.
1: I also love the fact, Charlie, that you, you write back into the history things which are perhaps ignored or forgotten or overlooked. So, I mean, there are probably not many books which contain within them both the story of Kurt Schwitter as the avant-garde artist and Mr Blobby the a theme park a sort of disastrous theme park venture in in Morecambe from a couple of decades ago so you're I mean you're clearly interested in those in those stories and what they sort of say about the what really has happened as opposed to the idealized form.
0: Well of course I mean every environment has always got these great um, elements of glitch, if you like, that they're not what they're presented as, and things that suddenly become—you become aware of aspects of the environment or its history, which undermine any any opportunity or any chance of seeing it as a as a integrated whole, a kind of thing that makes perfect sense under its own. Uh, understanding and Mr. Blobby is a perfect example of that. The intervention of Mr. Blobby into that environment was a, a gift, um, as far as I was concerned. And like by Schwitters, who's I mean, everybody's quite aware of the fact that Schwitters was there. But if you start to think through the idea of a Dada artist and poet in that context, and then see how more appropriate it is than you might have thought in the first place, it starts to again, I hope, change some of the ways you look at this landscape and see what it's actually got, what it's full of. You know, it's, it's, more, it's more stuff going on there than the innocent eye might uh, take in.
1: So would you hope that some visitors, at least, to the Lake District might pick up your book and might actually it might actually change their minds, change their view, change their way of visiting and thinking and responding to to this place. I mean, do you think, do you th- I mean, on a Pragmatic, note, do you think gift shops will actually sell, uh, sell you books? Uh,
0: well, uh, firstly, I would like every visitor to the Lake District to buy it because there are 19 million visitors a year. So if I did that, I could retire, um, which would be fantastic. And at one of the earliest places to stock it and put in the window was the bookshop in Grasmere. A very, it's a brilliant bookshop, uh, and I was delighted to see that within the very heart of the place that I'd um, sort of been critical of, they had placed, you know, the book was in the bookshop and in the window next to books all about the Lake District. So I think there is a, a, a sense that people might read it and read it for pleasure and maybe change their mind about it. I also think possibly, uh, I think you said in the email, something about, um, something, about something coming at the right time. Hitting a certain sensibility or a certain lack of belief in a dominant sensibility is something people are responding to. When I saw I'm writing a book called I Hate the Lake District, you know, people either laugh or go yup. You know, it's kind of, there's there's a sort of sense that they understand what the title means. So I hope that people will read it. Obviously, I hope they'll buy it. Please buy it. Um, but I also hope. Uh, that they will use it as a way of thinking differently about how they experience the landscape not as I do but you know perhaps in slightly less reductive ways
1: and it's it's a kind of way of thinking which could be applied to other places isn't it because although maybe the lake district is a particularly good example the kind of thinking is manifest in, in different places uh, as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, friends have suggested that I might want to write a series of books, starting I hate, and then just go to other parts. of it. But I'm not going to do that, because I think this is a one-off. But the interesting thing for me in writing this book is developing a practice of writing that is responsive to the interconnectivity of things, that how things are complexly interconnected and different aspects of, of the world kind of collide and connect with each other in ways that may not be academically orthodox or, you know, empirically um, that robust, but in a sense, not to put it too pretentiously, I made me for a kind of poetry of connectivity, the sense that, in a way, everything connects. Yeah. I fear it's a legacy of being a bit of a stoner when I was younger, which, as you may you know, once you start smoking dope, you can make anything kind of connect with each other. And I still had that sense that um, I liked... I like the idea of seeing the world as a series of almost occult connections, and that's what I would perhaps want people to enjoy in the book, the idea that you can start to see things not just on the surface as being this kind of environment, but as a place where lots of strange and other unexpected connections might happen. And my writing, I think, from henceforth is going to develop in that direction.
1: I was talking to Charlie Gere about his book, I Hate the Lake District, which is available now in paperback from Goldsmiths Press in their UFO series, Unidentified Fictional Objects. It's distributed by the MIT Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find over 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.